I guess so the main the main piece of kit now for a photojournalist is a Kevlar vest, which who would have ever thought, you know, like cover when you're covering peaceful protests that you would need to wear a Kevlar vest. A rich man's Hey, how are y'all doing out there in podcast land? Welcome to episode four of Red Lens. On this episode, I talk with Taifi Fan Kwong. Taifi is a great Twin Cities-based photographer, a former videographer, and an all-around great guy. You'll hear about his journey from skateboarding to skateboarding videographer to movement photographer and much more. You can see some of Taifi's work and get in touch with him on Facebook and Instagram. I'll post the links in the show notes on my Patreon page. I'm excited that I've been able to get this podcast off the ground, and now I'm four episodes in. I've been doing one episode a month, which is what I planned, so I'm happy I've been able to stick to that schedule so far. I'm learning how to do this as I go, so thanks for bearing with me. It's a total DIY effort, so I'm not only doing the interviews, but also editing and cleaning up the audio files, then compiling the whole episode using free software called Audacity. It's a lot of fun, but I, something that I'm learning as I go. For the next one after this, the fifth episode, I've already done the interview, so hopefully I'll get that edited and released on the same schedule to keep them coming once a month. I have a lot of ideas for people that I'd like to interview after that, but I'd also like to hear from you. Let me know if you have ideas for political photographers or other people I could interview or topics I could cover. Also, feel free to touch base if you have any comments, praise, or criticisms of what I've been doing so far on the podcast. You can reach me at theredlenspodcast at gmail.com. Before we get into this episode's interview, I'm going to go through some news and updates in my little corner of the photography and politics world. I mentioned this last time, but I'm going to talk about it again because now I have my copy of the book in hand, and it's great. If you've been to any protests demanding justice for lives stolen by the police in the Twin Cities since 2020, you've most likely seen Brandon Lee Tulloch lead chants or do powerful spoken word. He's now published his second book, Land of the Free, Home of the Brave. You can and should buy a copy. It's available for purchase on lulu.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. In addition to Brandon's words, the book also includes photos from a bunch of great local movement photographers, and it also has a few of mine as well. So get your copy today. I recently got a fun treat in the mail. It's a photo book slash zine called All Access, Bands on Film. It's a photo book slash zine of punk bands from the late 80s and 1990s in Washington, D.C. and in California. It includes some lesser-known bands, but also some bands that are now pretty big names. Everyone from Fugazi to Social Distortion, to Henry Rollins, to Agnostic Front, Green Day, L7, Pantera, Smashing Pumpkins, and more. The photographer, who said she doesn't really feel comfortable being called that, so I guess the person who took the photos in this book, is Shauna Kenny. Sean is a friend who I met when I moved to D.C. in the 1980s, and we both did punk fanzines at the time. We were part of a small group of people who put out zines back then, and it's been really cool seeing her ongoing success as a writer, and of course, as we see in this book, as a photographer, too. You can check out this book and her other work at her website, seanakenny.com. I'll share the link to that in the show notes as well. There's one more really cool photo book I'd like to mention that came out fairly recently. It's by the legendary punk photographer Glenn E. Friedman. This book has his photos of the band Black Flag, and it's titled What I See, 
the Black Flag photographs of Glenn E. Friedman. There are hundreds of pages of photos of Black Flag playing live in concert as well as practicing and both posed and candid shots of the band. The book includes some classic Black Flag photos that fans have almost surely seen before, in addition to hundreds more never-before-seen photos. Since these photos were taken in the 1980s, of course, everything was shot on film. Given that, the quality is absolutely amazing. What Glenn Friedman was able to do with film and without doing any cropping or anything like that is just mind-blowing. The pure emotion that he conveys in these photos is it just absolutely matches the rest of his super inspiring work. So definitely get a copy if that's something that sounds interesting to you. The book was published by Akashic Press, and I'll include a link in the show notes as well. Switching gears from photography to politics, I wanted to mention a pretty new podcast I've been really excited about. It's called Fight Back Radio. There have been six episodes so far, and all of them have been great. Fightback Radio is hosted by a longtime friend of mine and a union organizer named Richard Berg at Chicago. Fightback Radio is affiliated with Fightback News, which I've also done photography and writing for for many years. Fightback Radio interviews grassroots activists who are in the trenches fighting for justice in many different movements. I really like the focus of this podcast on activists who are actually in the streets doing organizing. It's relatable and focuses on the most important thing if you want to fight back against injustice and change the world, doing something. I'll share the link for that as well, and you can check it out and subscribe to it. On another political note, let's talk about FBI raids. As everyone's probably heard, Donald Trump had his home in Florida raided by the FBI, apparently. But Donald Trump isn't the only one the FBI has raided recently. And for the whole history of the FBI, their main target has overwhelmingly been the left, the black freedom movement, the labor movement, and anyone progressive trying to change things in this country. Yeah, very infrequently, they'll go after someone on the right, like Trump, But even at the same time as they do that, they're also targeting the left. That's what happened on July 29th when the FBI raided homes and offices of the Uhuru Movement, a black socialist group in St. Louis, Missouri and St. Petersburg, Florida. When I saw articles and interviews with the people who were raided, it looked very similar to me in some ways to the FBI raids that happened on September 24, 2010 against the anti-war 23 in Minneapolis, Chicago and other cities. This is a very concerning development for people active in movements for change, and I think it's crucial to stand with the Uhuru movement in resisting this political repression. It's also a good time to remind ourselves that, and everyone in the movement fighting for change about some basics. One is don't talk to the FBI, period. If they come to your home or office, don't tell them anything except your name and that they can talk to your lawyer. You don't want to talk to the FBI, but you do want to talk to the people and publicize what happened. The FBI likes to work in secrecy and use intimidation. That doesn't work if people refuse to be intimidated and put everything out in the open. The Uhuru movement did that. They did a press conference right after the raids denouncing what happened as political repression. They went public, and that's the right thing to do. People who are facing repression like this should want everyone to know who they are so that people can support them as they face the prospect of grand juries, possible serious federal charges and trials, and the possibility of prison time for their anti-imperialist politics. To stay up on what's going on, you should follow the Committee to Stop FBI Repression and the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression at Stop FBI and at NARPR. Those are two organizations who have been fighting against FBI repression and political repression against the left for many years, and they'll definitely have information as things move forward. I'll put those links in the show notes as well. You can also read their statement condemning these FBI raids against the Uhuru movement which again, I'll also link in the show notes. That pretty much wraps up the Red Lens news and updates for this episode. So with that, 
Sit back and enjoy this episode's interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a brand new shiny episode of everybody's favorite podcast, Red Lens Podcast. I've made it past a couple episodes, so I'm guessing this podcast now has a longer run than most podcasts. I'm sure it'll all be smooth sailing from here on out, and my path to being an influencer with a life of fame and fortune is just waiting to happen. Um, Yeah, just kidding. That's not really what this is about. But uh, anyway, I have a great guest here today, someone who was actually talked about a lot in the first episode when I interviewed Phil Ward, because uh, today's guest has been a big influence on both me and him in our trajectories with photography, and I hope I can say has been uh, a friend as well. So why don't we start out with just a little bit about who you are, where you live, and, and some of what you do. Yeah, so uh, my name is Ty Fon Fong. Um, I go by, most people know me as Tyfee. I live in the Frogtown neighborhood of St. Paul. I've been here since 2014. I'm a father of two, and I also do photography. <laughs> I, I'm glad you do photography since that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah, so you said you moved to Minnesota in 2014. Um, before that, you lived in, in the Bay Area, is that right? I think you've told me you did some videography out there doing filming skateboarding videos and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? So actually, before the Bay Area, I was in New Orleans for a couple of years. But before that, I was living in San Francisco before and just all over the Bay Area. I was in the East Bay. I lived in, I don't know, Sacramento a couple of times. And then I met my wife in San Francisco. We moved to New Orleans for a couple of years and then uh, moved up to Minnesota in 2014. But um, yeah, Bay Area is where I started, is where I started my media, my media journey. Let's see. So I started doing videography as a result of just skateboarding. Did you skate too or just do video work of other people skating? Yeah, no. So I started skating first and probably in the mid 90s video VHS skateboard videos started to become kind of a big deal. And at that time, compact video cameras were more accessible, or I think were just starting to come out. Like I think in 94 or yeah, 94, I, at Sac State, I was renting video cameras and they were like the shoulder mounted VHS. Like big, heavy loading. Yeah. You know, and those were, those were camcorders and, you know, I would lug those around and film, like one other person at Sac State that skated. <laughs> then in like 95, my dad got me a Circuit City credit card. Do they have Circuit City out here? Yeah, it used to be here. Yeah, I think or, it's gone used now. To, right? used yeah. To, yeah, yeah, it was just, yeah. But he got me a Circuit City credit card and I got my first video camera. It was a, J, a JVC. I can't remember the model, but obviously JVC is junkie, stands for junkie video camera. <laughs> like the, absolute, the absolute worst. Um, yeah, and I would use that to film my friends and what what did you do with those videos like this is obviously so, before social media and all that yeah this is totally before social media so it it really it wasn't like it wasn't like we were gonna we were filming back then it wasn't like we were filming for a specific video we would just film tricks because in skateboarding like if there's no record of you doing a trick at a spot then there's no proof you know if, if there's no video or photo actually of you doing the trick at the spot, then it just never happened. And so it became like for like skateboarders that got to a certain level, it was like, you wouldn't even really go out unless somebody had a video camera and a camera because it was, Mm. otherwise it would just be a waste of time. 
yeah so i get this camera and so we would just film every day and then after a while you'd be like hey we should make a video we should put this all together you know so i'd take my my circuit city credit card and you know after we filmed whatever we needed we, and it was time to start editing i went and i got like uh this is this is linear editing this is before non-linear editing right so it was like you had to have a mixer you had to have a titler you had to have two high eight decks or whatever tapes you were using at the time i think there was there was high eight and there was like vhsc and a, like a couple of other ones but these were like the smaller tapes okay and then what so a titler a mixer you know and then a couple of screens right a couple of monitors and I would edit it, it would, and back then to edit, I think my first video like that I did completely alone by myself, like filmed and edited and everything in linear editing it took me like six months to edit. And it was like a 12 minute video. Six you know? months. Oh and, my God. Yeah. And, and because you have to, because it's linear editing. So you have to do everything. You have to lay everything down in the exact order that you want it to be in. Mm-hmm. And then you go through and you lay down the titles and then you lay down the music and then, you know, what fade and the, Oh, and then you got to lay down the fades and the transitions. And so, and every time you did that, the quality of the video just got worse and worse and worse and worse, but it was fun. I mean, it was, it was great. Just as you're saying this, I'm remembering, cause I skated in high school and, you know, a little bit into college and that was like late eight, mid to late eighties, early nineties. And I remember like we would get our hands, me and my friends on video tapes of like people like Steve Caballero, people like that, or whatever the companies were, they would make these compilation tapes of their skaters, you know, just, yeah. it was like, oh my God, getting your hands on one of those and just watching and like, how do they do that? You know? Totally. And it was gold and you would just watch it over and over again, you know? And it was like the only access that you had because there was no internet, there was no Instagram. And that stuff would never know? be on TV, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So you started out skating and then just doing video of you you and your friends skating and editing it, taking six months at a time. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I made, you know, we made a couple of videos and then, you know, like I, I worked at a skate shop and we would do, you know, we'd make shop videos after that. Like I made a how-to video, you know, how to ollie and how to, you know, do whatever other tricks, how to put together your board. Yeah, that was, it was really cool. It was cool because like, it wasn't like, I picked up a video camera because I wanted to start film. It, it was like a, ne- a necessity as a skateboarder to be able to film and, and do yeah. that kind of thing. So like if you're doing video of someone skating on a ramp or in a pool or in a stationary place, you can sort of be in one spot and be vi- be filming. But if you're doing like street skating where people are going through a city or whatever, they're moving and you have to then be moving too, right? So like, yeah. how did yeah. you do that? Were you on a skateboard yeah, so, too? Were you in a car? Yeah, so. Like. I'd, so I'd be on a skateboard um, and usually it would have bigger wheels, uh, rubber it, or not rubber, but softer. It would be bigger, softer wheels so that it was quieter, but also um, faster. So it would take it was supposed to take less effort for me to keep up with them. But a lot of skateboarders get really fast. And in San Francisco, there's the hills. And oh, man, know, those so hills. Get, yeah, so it, it can get it can definitely get pretty intense. And actually, like in my my older years now, I actually developed scoliosis as a result of filming because when you have one foot up on the board and then your your other foot is like a couple inches, mm. you know, hanging below at all times because you're pushing and your foot's constantly dragging to control speed and going back and forth. I actually extended my right leg two inches over the years, which create which like totally screwed up my hips, which screwed up my spine. Oh man. And now like my back just kind of looks like this. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Okay. So 
you're like filming and cameras today have in-body image stabilization and stuff like that. Like, did those cameras have that or were you like, you know, everything was like shaking as you're going? Yeah, no, very steady. Like you had to keep, you know, and these are the things that you had to be conscious about, like the distance that you were, that you kept from them and going at speed, like you're, you're basically having to choreograph, you know, so let's say it's a three trick line. Okay. Meaning you do one, you do three tricks in a row and you're pushing in between from one obstacle to another. Right. And so let's say you've got a set of stairs that you do a trick down. Right. So I'd have to either have one skateboard on the top of the stairs and then another skateboard on the bottom of the stairs. And I have to run down the stairs, jump on the second set of stairs, still be able to keep up with the skater that went down the stairs follow him next to the to the ledge and you you know you have to be you have to be conscious of being in front of their face because you don't want to film their butt right so if the skateboarder is one stance or another stance you have to take that into consideration too so you have to map out your entire line before you're even doing the trick like when you see it on the street it looks like a couple of fumbling fools just falling (laughs) all over the place right just like what are these guys doing but there's actually so much intent and so much like preparation into like just filming a simple line. Amazing. So other than scoliosis, which you just talked about, like, did you have any other injuries in filming people where you're skating and then you just don't see because you're focusing on, on video, you know, you may not see like a rock or a stick in, in the way or like a pothole. Oh, daily. It was via daily, whether it was, uh, yeah, rocks were huge. Gosh, what, what would be, you know, so many skateboards to the head. Cause you know, skateboarder board flies out. And a lot of times when you're, cause when you're using fisheye too, you're like right there, you know, you're like really, really close. I was going to ask uh, about that. Yeah. With, if you did, if you used fisheye, used fisheye for video too, not just, I guess for photos, but for video. Oh yeah. Hugely. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I had a horrible, no, I had a really bad wide angle lens on my first JVC. But then when I finally upgraded to like what they call the prosumer camera, I actually was when I started filming like seriously um, and that kind of became my full time from like, I had completely because of my back, like my back got so bad where I couldn't even do tricks on a skateboard anymore. And so it was like, okay, well now the only thing that I can do is film skateboarding because there's no way I'm leaving skateboard, you know, like it's Mm. just, it's been a part of my blood since I was like 10 years old. And so, so um, you were super close then too. So did you get damaged equipment from the, the skateboard hitting the camera, like, did oh, that happen oh, a lot? The lens, the fisheye, you know, you'd, I, I don't know. I lost, I probably went through 10, 15 fisheyes easily. Yeah. So after a while, you know, you got into the, the, the prosumer, the Sony VX 1000 was a big camera and the, the Canon equivalent of that was the Canon GL1 and, um, Century Optics made a fisheye lens called the, it was, it was the Mark, the MK1 is what it was called. And, uh, it was just, it was like a manhole cover. That's what we, that, that was the nickname <laughs> of it. this giant lens. And it just, it pretty much changed and pretty much revolutionized skateboard videography at that point because it was just like that lens with the combination of the sony vx 1000 or even the vx 2000 after the 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 colors and the the picture the way it just made the skateboarder just look it was made that lens that setup was just made to shoot skateboard videos people still use those cameras today with that lens to shoot skateboarding and actually the funny thing is century optics actually discontinued that lens and then the skateboarding community went into a freaking uproar about it they were like you can't you can't you know and they brought the lens back 
for skateboarders, which is wow. awesome. So, so some people might be listening who don't know as much about camera gear, like what a fisheye lens is. And one of the photographers who I really learned a lot from and was inspired by because like I started out doing pictures like at punk shows and then also used to skateboard is Glenn Friedman, Glenny e. Friedman. Oh yeah, sure. He, he did a lot of photos like starting in the 70s of some of the early skaters and he uh-huh. I think used a fisheye lens at least on some of his best stuff. So w- what is a fisheye lens and why is that so good for skateboarding? So what is a fisheye? I mean, fisheye lens is almost exactly what it sounds like. It's this bulbous lens. It looks like a fisheye. It it pretty much gives you almost a, I mean, maybe some of them even do give you a full 180 degree view of whatever it is. But if it's a, a poorly made lens, you can get vignetting on the outside, you know, the black ring along yeah. the outside. Uh, it tends to get r- bad fish eyes can also be very dis- distorted. But that's, that distortion also is what was really good for skateboarding. And why a fish eye is so important in skateboarding is because, yeah, you can get really close to the action and it amplifies everything. It makes everything look bigger. Right. So a set of stairs is going to look, look bigger. A handrail is going to look bigger with the proper knowledge of how to use the lens. You know, you, if you're standing super far away, it, it's going to look tiny. But if you get really close to it, it takes up the whole frame and makes it look way steeper than it is or way longer than it is. And also the advantage of getting that huge field of view is I don't have to hold the camera up to my eye the entire mm-hmm. time. Like I can hold it really low to the ground and aim and tilt it up a little bit. So that's how I would, especially with the VX 1000 that didn't have the fold out LCD screen, you had to really train yourself and be able to keep the skateboarder completely centered. Don't cut off the head. Don't cut off the the board, you know, so it took a lot of practice. And that's Um, without a a screen to even see what you're filming. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, like the way I think about it, you have to, with a fisheye lens, you have to, it seems like you have to get super close. So with skateboarding, mm-hmm. it's like if you're like at the edge of a pool or, or a half pipe and somebody, the skater's coming up and you take the picture, like ideally right when the skateboard is practically touching the camera. And yeah. and the good thing about the fisheye lens is then you have the, the skater like right in the center of the frame, but it's wide enough that you still see all the stuff around it too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, if it's even with just a regular wide angle lens, which a fisheye is even more like if you don't get close enough. Yeah. Like you said, the subject of what you're trying to take a picture or video of, it's just like this tiny dot, you know, and it's like not very good. But yeah, it takes a lot, a lot of a lot of practice, a lot of experience, Mm. you know, to get good at. And I mean, Friedman, one of the best. Yeah. And he was doing all that shooting film and, you know, shooting film. Exactly. Manual focus, everything. Totally. Yeah. 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 So, but the, the bad thing about the fisheye too, though, is that like, I mean, back then, like in in the early to mid nineties is, was like literally 99% of, of skateboard video would be all fisheye. Like that's all you would see, you know? And it was just like for, there was a point where the fisheye pretty much never came off my camera. You know, it just was a part of the camera. And it, I think it wasn't until maybe like maybe 99, 2000, somewhere around there where people started to just to kind of take it off and try and be a little bit more creative with their with their video and their filming. And then that kind of stepped up the game again in skateboard videography where people started using like 16 millimeter cameras. They were shooting film, you know, like high eight film and they'd mix it up with the standard definition, you know, Sony. I can't was it mini DV tapes? I'm, I'm trying to remember what it was even called. I guess standard definition. It's just standard def. Yeah. Okay. 
So have you worked with any skateboarders that people might recognize names of? Like, you know, who was it just you and your, your buddies or was it like, did you work on videos with any of the big name people? Yeah. So, I mean, like later, I don't know, probably like, yeah, like the early 2000s is when, you know, it was just 100% filming for me. And in during that time, like the early 2000s, Northern California was like the skateboard mecca at the, it, it's, it's always been like huge in skateboarding, especially in San Francisco. But yeah. like during that time when I, like when I was in Sacramento skateboarding, like, I mean, all of the companies, I'm, I'm going to say like probably like 90% of all skateboard companies are based in California. And of those probably 80% of them are in Southern California. Okay. Um, but during that time when I was living in Sacramento, skateboarding got so big in that area that all of the companies would come through Sacramento at least a couple of times a year to skate. And so during that time, I was filming a lot of those guys that would come through. But these are, but I mean, whether it's names that people are going to recognize, like most people recognize names off of the X Games, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, even like, I mean, maybe now after a while, it'll be the Olympics too, but right now it's just the X Games and X Games is a completely different type of skateboarding than what, what I was doing. Like X Games pro skaters make money doing contests, you know, mm -hmm. and they're on ESPN and they have a lot more exposure. Whereas like the, the skateboarders that are actually carrying these companies are not, are not the ones that are doing these big, you know, X Games contests. They're mm -hmm. out in the streets, skateboarding, taking photos for magazines and shoot, doing video and stuff like that. Um, going on tours and, and, and so, um, yeah, so, uh, I don't know, maybe Paul Rodriguez would probably be like the, the most famous skateboarder I've ever filmed. But I did a commercial for Nike with uh, Brian Anderson, who is the first openly openly gay skateboarder. Oh, wow. He came out like, I don't know, when he came out, well, I don't know, a handful of years ago, but amazing skateboarder. So one of my favorite street skaters. That's cool. Yeah, if you're not familiar with him, you should look him up. He's he's a beast. He's just like this big, burly dude on a, on a board. He's got these amazing arms. And he's just, he's got the most amazing style. And he does street skating mainly? He's a street skater, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. And yeah, I don't know. What else? Brandon Beeble. I don't know if you've ever heard of Brandon Beeble. Matt Miller is a, a really good skateboarder. There's a lot of street skater, a lot of street skaters. But that's cool. So you were mostly doing video, it sounds like, when you were in the Bay Area. When did you make the transition to focusing more on photography than videography? So that happened here in Minnesota, and it was pretty much a result of not. Like for me, video, I equate video with skateboarding. And when I moved here, I got involved with the skateboard community. Like right off the bat, like like I did this thing where like when I moved from San Francisco, I moved to New Orleans. When I moved to New Orleans, I went to the local skate shop and I was like, hey, I'm new in town. You know, I'm a videographer. Like, let's hook up and do some stuff, you know, like yeah. blah, blah, blah. And, and it worked out great. Like, in New Orleans, I became really good friends with the, the shop owner in New Orleans down there. And I was filming his guys and we were putting out content. You know, it was awesome. And so I did the same thing when I came up here. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to one of the big skate shops and I and was like, you know, let's do some stuff. And, and then, long story short, um, a lot of kind of drama happened. I can get into it if you want me to. Um, actually, I think it might be important, actually. Okay. Um, so, from a kind of a business standpoint, almost. So... We had made an agreement with the shop owner that we were going to make a full-length shop video. And this shop, this is a, a prestigious shop in the Twin Cities. Never had a, I'm pretty sure never had a shop video. Okay. And so, and the, and he even he even said we had never done done one because there would always be some issue that would come up to where it just wouldn't happen. So so anyways, we filmed. So 
you know, we started filming for a shop video. Um, I think there was like five or six guys and we were filming every day. And I told these guys from the beginning, I said, Hey, this fo- all of this footage is going to the video. So nobody can see any of this footage before the video drops. If you want to do Instagram stuff, you know, or whatever, then you, you're totally welcome to pull your phone out while we're filming and do it. I don't care. Right. But my footage is going into this. So you're, it's not going to see the light of day. After the video is done, you all can have your footage. Right. And I have, I, I had this conversation because I've had to have this conversation many times in the past with skateboarders okay. because this is what always happens is that three months down the line, skateboarders are coming up to me going, Hey, my company that my sponsor, you know, cause most of these guys are sponsored by companies. Uh, my sponsor wants some footage. Can I give them a couple of clips? Yeah. And I'm like, no, you can't, you can't give them a couple of clips because you know, we've already established this from the beginning that this is how it's going to go. Right. And then, you know, and so it just, it, it got, it got ugly. Like they started spreading rumors and it just got lame. And so, and that basically, and this, it, this, that scenario wasn't the first time that this has happened to me. It's probably the second or third time it's happened to me. Oh, wow. But this time it was like such a big deal because I don't know, maybe it was my age or so I'm getting, I'm a lot older now, you know, so not, I don't know. I'm not going to put up with bullshit anymore. Right. I think that might, might be it. And so, and so I, I kind of like was done with video after that happened. Right. And so you just kind of stopped doing video actively. I stopped doing, well, no, I I was um, trying to get video gigs because that would be my side gig too. You know, besides filming skateboarding would be, you know, whatever little, little events here and there, you know? Yeah. And so I would do little, little events or film little interviews for people or, or whatever. But it, it was um, trying to do video as a business that's not skateboarding was like really hard for me. Because mm. like I didn't know anybody here. And like it was just people didn't want to pay the rate out here, number one. And number two, like people would always ask if I did photography. They're like, okay. you know, when you do video, do you do photography? And I'm like, and the funny thing is, is because when I moved, you know, here, I wasn't using, I was using DSLRs to shoot video, right? Because what, in oh, 2008 or something like that, yeah, I think Canon put out a DSLR that shot, that shot HD video. I think it was the T2i was, was the first, I'm, I'm probably totally wrong. That probably was nowhere near their first camera that shot video. Right. I it have no idea. So sounds good to me. Yeah. But being able to shoot in HD was like, cause, and I, I got the Canon T3i for video, you know, cause I was still shooting skateboarding, skateboarding videos, never shot a photo on, okay. you know, like it was like my video camera. Yeah. And so, and people were like, do you shoot photos? And I'm like, do I shoot? I've never, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I've never really tried shooting photos. I, I mean, I, I messed around before. Like I would shoot a skateboard photo with no flashes or anything here and there with the fisheye, but it was never anything like, it was just, it was whatever's, yeah. but I never, I never took it seriously. I was never like, Oh, I'm going to start taking skate photos or even just photos in general. But then the, the compounding of that and like video technology, like just having to keep up with it was just insane. You know, with the red cameras and like, who's, you know, who's going to pay $40,000 for a video camera? You know what I mean? When next, wow. when the next year, like, you know, now, I mean, you can shoot freaking 8k on your phone, I think, you know? So I was like, yeah, screw it. I'm just going to, start shooting photos you know and that was when and literally i'm trying to think like let's see yeah so when i quit skateboarding when i quit skateboard videoing videography i sold i sold my t3i and i upgraded to the six the canon 6d uh-huh. 
the first six, 60, the first full frame. And I was shooting video with that. And that's when I was like, I'm going to start shooting photos with, with the 6D. Mm-hmm. And that was at the fourth precinct, I think was like, literally, it was literally like, I got the 6D shot a couple. I remember I shot something at a at Frogtown Farms here for, for some event for like, I can't remember if it was the Animal Humane Society or something. I, sh- I shot one video there. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth precinct happened, Jamar Clark. And um, I went down there with my wife, right? Because she was like connecting with people down there. And we were bringing food and stuff down there and like blankets and shit. So just for anyone who may not know, the uh, Jamar Clark was killed by the Minneapolis police. Was it 2014 or 15? Uh, I think it was 2014, yeah. Yeah. And in response, there was uh, an occupation of the 4th Precinct of Minneapolis Police, which is on the north side, a few blocks from where he was killed. And so people just started gathering there and and occupied the space outside the precinct for like three weeks or so, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Two, three weeks. Um, So that was when you first started taking pictures. Okay. Cause that's, yeah, my memory is that's around when I started seeing your photos and I remember seeing like your photos and Chris June's photos from the protests in in that point period of time. And it was just like, wow, these are amazing photos. Like my photos don't look like that when I snap a few shots at a protest or whatever, like I got to step up my game, you know? So, so, okay. That's interesting. That's when you started taking pictures. Yeah. What drew you to taking pictures at protests? So that, so I, I would say that that was like my intro to it, right? That was like me being almost a complete outsider. I mean, if it wasn't for my wife, right? Like I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have gone there, right? But because of her, I went there and um, I shot photos there. And then I can't even remember if I post. No, I did post those photos. I did post those photos. And those photos got really like they were really well received. Like I wasn't expecting to really, you know, like I just, I put them, I posted them, you know, and they got, they got received really well. And then I'm trying to remember, like my next thing was the governor's mansion, right? After Philando Castile. Mm-hmm. And that was what you're, you see, so you're better. You've got all the historical context, like years and the years and, and everything. I don't. What was that 2016? I think so. Yeah. That's okay. So so that was the governor's yeah and so that was the first time where i was where it impacted me where i felt it personally mm. i felt it you know like it was um you know philando worked at a school pretty much in my neighborhood yep right and he was murdered like down the street pretty much like over by the fairgrounds which is down the, right down the street from from me yeah and that was live you know it was uh it was live streamed, right? His wife was, or his partner was live streamed yeah, yeah, as yeah. he was, was murdered by the police in their car right, when he was right. complying with every order, did everything you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that was when I was like, I, I, I want to do something, right? I don't know what I can, I do know that I can take pictures and that's, that's what I know, or that's like, that's all I can do. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to find a bullhorn. You know what I mean? <laughs> I wasn't trying to make signs and chant and do the, you know, like I didn't want to just show up and stand there and look like an idiot. But I think at that time too, it was like, I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. Like, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this for real. I'm going to get into this protest photography, but I'm, or movement photography, but I'm going to do it. Like, like I didn't want to sensationalize it. You know, like I didn't want, I wanted to do what mainstream media wasn't doing. That's basically, because every time I saw a photo, you know, like, you know, you, you look on 
CNN or even you know Yahoo News or whatever, and it was it was just always like some I don't know somebody pissed off, you know, like an angry face or you know yelling and 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 there, there's definitely times for that too, you know. But like you know how we do it, like we don't just post like one or two photos. It'll be like a series of photos, so you have a, a context of what's going on. You know, it's not just one photo and then and right. Then that's you're, it. You know? You're you're telling more of the story. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So. And yeah, and like, I think Chris was like, I, 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 I would see Chris out there, like Chris was like pretty much the only other dude that was shooting photos. And then there'd be like, like King was out there, but he'd be live streaming at the time. I'm trying to remember who. who I think like, Nico, I was like. Nico was out there at that time. Yeah, Unicorn Nico Riot. Out there too. Yep, yep, yep. Nico was out there a lot. Yeah, but it, it just, it kind of was just all really organic, you know, mm. like. Like I never felt during that time, during the, the you know, the protests at the governor's mansion, because I guess it was an Occupy, yeah, it was an Occupy space too. Yeah. And uh, it was like I had been doing it forever, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it was like I knew everybody, you know, like everybody's just like, oh, hey, what's, you know, like people wouldn't even know my name, but they were, you know, saw me into, but it was just like, it was just so comfortable, you know. And pe like, people would like come up to you like, oh, I saw your photos or things like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I would just be like, you know, and when you, okay, well, I guess I'll do it again. <laughs> I didn't think, I didn't think it would be as, I didn't think they would have it as big of an impact as they, as they did or, or do. And so after a while, it's just like, it almost becomes like an obligation, mm. you know? Yeah. So had you been involved or gone to protests before that, like in your life? Was that something you did once in a while or regularly no, like so I in went California to... or? So in California in 2011 was when the big Occupy Oakland happened, you know, Occupy Wall Street. Right. And that was, and Oakland was just like crazy during that time. I think it was like maybe a couple of weeks and maybe even longer. I remember seeing actions like where they shut down the port and stuff in Oakland, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, but I, I would go out to Oakland at night with my T3i shooting video and, but yeah, it would be gnarly. Like people would shut down the, you know, they'd pull the dumpsters out in the middle of the street, set them on fire, you know, riot cops and got pepper sprayed. You did? Yeah. So that was, you know, not, not like, I think you were hit like directly, like, I'm going to get that dude. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like That's how you got hit. Yeah. I was more like in a group of people and just like, yeah, got the community spray type thing, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, but that was more like, that was more, I went out for like b-roll of for my skateboard videos you know because uh, back okay. then it was like like in the back then or back then 2011 i wasn't i was like very non-political at all yeah i was very non-political and um other than so in, other than the, other than in the sense that you know skateboarding it's sort of a subculture with some sort of rebellious kind of characteristics but not like you weren't involved in organizing or like going to protest regularly things like that Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I was, I just didn't follow politics. It was just like at that, at that point, it was like, I was just completely engulfed in skateboarding. There was nothing outside of my <laughs> head that involved anything other than skateboarding. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until I met my, I was dating my wife during Occupy Oh, okay. And so, yeah. So, but even at that point, like I really wasn't, you know, like we were still dating, but after like living in, you know, we, when we moved to New Orleans and, you know, just, her you know educating me and taking me along to different events and things like that meeting her friends and you know slowly mm. getting i started to realize yeah there's some definite bullshit going on <laughs> in the world you know? yeah for sure so, yeah 
So, so, so you, I, you started doing photography at protests around that time when Jamar Clark was killed, Flano Castile was killed, and then you were out in the streets a lot documenting, you know, taking photos like in the in the George Floyd uprising, like in the year or a couple of years after, since then. Yeah, you were out a lot then. And in, in that stuff, we did also get tear gassed and had to deal with a lot of that kind of stuff where cops were like targeting protesters and in some cases even targeting photographers or videographers. And, um, you know, we all started wearing like the protective equipment and, and all that. Yeah. Um, do, do you want to talk about that? Like, I'd love to hear some stories from some of the things you saw. I don't, were you out during the uprising itself, like the, the several days around when the third precinct was burned or did you go out more after that? I would go out. I was, I was out quite a bit, but I would definitely dip out before things got too crazy. Yeah, at that time, I'm trying to remember. If, yeah, Bolden was already born, so I had a really young. Bolden's two and a half now, but he was born in 2019. You know, and then the four-year-old on top of that. There's no way I was going to leave my wife at home with two kids. Yeah, you know, I was just like, it's, there were just some limits. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I remember like the freeway shut down. You know, like I rem- I remember like coming onto the exit, like walking out onto the exit, and and being like on the tail end, like towards the. You were there, right? Were you there that night? Did you get which night was that? Which time? Eight hundred people were uh, arrested. The mass arrest, the six hundred forty-six. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that night, you know, I remember being close to the exit and like like hearing the the cops, you know, like talk their, you know, like this is what this is what we're gonna do is we're gonna do. And I'm like calling King and Phil, like, dude, they're gonna shut down. They're gonna shut down. You know, they're going to start arresting people like they're taking everybody like you guys need to get out right now. And if you remember, like everybody was like corralled, like there was like a wall. Yeah, there was like a 12 foot wall. And that was it. Like, they, you know, there was yeah. nowhere to go. And I was I was like right at the section where if I had to, I could hop a fence right. or I could I could get out. And so when they started, you know, shutting everything down, I was like, I'm gone. Like, I can't I can't do this, you know? Yeah. So you were, you were able yeah, to get so, out. OK. Yeah. So I got I mean. I got out, you know, because like, I just, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, what other, like you're the peppers, you getting pepper sprayed is gnarly. That, that was crazy. That was, that was random. Cause we weren't even, remember, we weren't even supposed to like, there was nothing even supposed to be going on. Yeah. Down there. Remember we were at a protest like earlier for, uh, see, this sucks that there's so many protests. <laughs> for. Yeah. I do remember there was a protest earlier in the day, like in the afternoon. Um, March. Yep. And then, I think the Stone Arch one made, oh no, that was the Stone Arch one too. I think you're right. Yeah. And then after we left, I remember seeing something online or whatever rumors started flying that the police had killed a black man in downtown Minneapolis in a parking ramp at uh, 7th and Nicollet. And yeah. And so, yeah, I remember you called me or you texted me or something, right? Yeah. And we were talking, we were like, damn, should we, should we go? Should we go? You know, cause at least for me, (laughs) I didn't have any of my protective equipment with me by then. You know, we were all uh, had stuff like a, a vest, bulletproof vest. We had tactical helmet, yeah, you know, goggles. I was already, yeah, yeah. I was already strapped to the gills that day. You already had all your equipment. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I just had like a T-shirt on and, you know, whatever, yeah. but uh, not prepared at all. But yeah, and yeah. then we got down there and it turned out it wasn't true. The rumors that the police had killed a black man. But by then... The police had uh, had reacted so uh, violently to the people who had been gathering there that um, yeah. it was just crazy. It was chaos. Yeah, totally. They totally escalated it. And this was like in June, so I believe. So 
George Floyd had been killed in right. May, late May. So this is just a yeah, few weeks it was, after. It was just a few weeks after. Yeah, that's right. And there were still protests like almost every day of thousands of people, you know, and, and then this yeah. happened and everyone was just like, no fucking way. Yeah, that was a that was a crazy day. Do you want to just describe for people like what you were wearing, like the gear that I was just talking about, you know, for protection and, and why? Yeah, so I guess so the main the main piece of kit now for a photojournalist is a Kevlar vest, which who would have ever thought, you know, like cover, when you're covering peaceful protests that you would need to wear a Kevlar vest. But I, I think a lot of us, no, I think we pretty much all got them. For the same. And the funny thing is, is what, you know, why are we wearing this Kevlar vest to protect ourselves from people that are supposed to be protecting us? You know, that's the funny thing is, the, that's the funny thing about it is like, yeah, I'm wearing a Kevlar vest so that I don't get hit by rubber projectiles from the police. Yeah. You know, even though constitutionally I'm supposed to be protected, you yeah. know, and there's no, it, and so it's just, it's ridiculous. Like people, like people be like, why are you wearing that? You know, like I remember we were, at, uh, the first time I got it, it was the state fair, the state Minnesota state aid fair yeah. protest. And yeah, people would be like, why are you, know, why are you, it's funny though. Cause I'd tell them and they go, yeah, that makes sense. I'm thinking about getting one, mm. you know, and there'd be people like whatever, but yeah. And so like, even like, even if the vibes seem cool and mellow, like I would still wear it, you know, but anyway, well, so you got the vest. Mm-hmm. No, sorry. Go ahead. What? I was just going to say, I just remembered as you were talking, even going back to the fourth precinct occupation, when Jamar Clark was killed, there was that one night that some random white supremacists showed up with guns and actually shot a few of the protesters there. And so yeah, yeah. you're protecting yourself, one, from potential projectiles and whatever from the police, but also just from random right wing or racist, crazy sure. people, you know, who um, showed up so, at the yeah. fourth precinct or and then I don't remember the exact sequence of time, but there was also in Wisconsin where that random 17 year old or whatever showed up and with a, a rifle or whatever. I don't remember what weapon he had, but like killed people at the protest and. Yeah, there was people from here like Chris June, I think, was there and actually <clears throat> saw that happening. And so, oh yeah, that's right. All yeah. this stuff is happening around us. So yeah, it seems like a pretty logical reaction. Like, wow, we're going to be out here day after day. There's yeah. risks, you know. Yeah. So Kevlar vest, and then what else were you wearing? I think I had my bump helmet with me, and that's really, you know, for I mean, flying projectiles, just in general, or you know, getting pushed, getting pushed down, or you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. For me, it was just always like being, I think if I didn't have kids, it wouldn't be as big of an issue for me, like my personal safety, Yeah, you know, but having a family, it's just like, it, it makes going out a lot bigger of a deal, you know, like you think about, like, I always think about worst case scenarios. Absolutely. And, so, and like how to cut, co- how to, how to cover those worst case scenarios, you know? For yeah. sure. So when you're taking pictures at protests, have you had people get mad at you or tell you they don't want their photo taken or that you shouldn't be taking photos at protests? You know, those kinds of things go around, uh, you know, from time to time. And I just saw like another round of them go go around with the protests against the Supreme Court ruling around Roe versus Wade that people give advice like, you know, don't take your camera to protest, don't take pictures, don't take video, you know, all this kind of stuff. Have you ever had anyone t- sort of get mad at you for documenting protests no i i actually have the very opposite effect i have people thanking me for being there a lot yeah yeah i get that way more and the one time where anybody ever questioned me they questioned who i was and it was a a newer and that and that's the thing like in the movement the twin cities movement here has changed quite a bit since 
George Floyd. Since pre-George Floyd and post-George Floyd, the movement, the faces have changed. There's been, there's a lot of new people. So that's what you mean? Just new people in when you say it's yeah. changed? Okay. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, for this conversation. <laughs> and so, yeah, that night, that night, literally while you were, we were taking care of you when you were pepper sprayed, mm-hmm. um, s- someone came up to me and was like, questioning who I was and who I was with while I was standing there like you know like I think there was a uh somebody might have been flushing milk we did we run into I feel like we ran into a medic at some point and somebody was flushing milk on you yeah Corey Uh, who's one of the main street medics yeah okay yeah and so yeah and that I think that's the only time that like stood out and where I was like where like I had to like explain myself Mm -hmm. who I was and I think maybe it was because I was in Kevlar you know because I have had people be like like when I was in um I was up north covering line three protests mm-hmm. and people would be like, or a person came up to me, you know, and was like, who, you know, why are you dressed like that? Mm-hmm. You know, why? And I would have to explain to them, well, I'm a target. You got to understand, like, as a, as a photojournalist, I'm a target to, to law enforcement. And so I'm just protecting myself. That, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, can you understand that that could be intimidating to some people? And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. My safety <laughs> intimidates you, you know, but whatever you know, what can you do? Yeah. Yeah. Right on. So changing gears a little bit, I'm interested to talk a little more about lighting and photography specifically like at protests. Like we've talked about lighting outside of the context of protest photography uh, in the past, but one thing I noticed, maybe it was just at one protest. I don't know, but maybe it was at more, I've seen you using flash while taking pictures at protests and not even just not at night, but like during the day. And, you know, most other photographers at protests don't use a flash or lighting unless it's after dark. And even then, you know, a lot of times people just use the ambient light, you know, wait till you get under a street light or car lights, whatever. So yeah, what, what's your, what, what are your thoughts on, on lighting? Like why do you use a flash sometimes at a, at a protest when, even when there's daylight? So I use a flash in the daytime when the sun is like either above, when the sun is in an unflattering position. Mm-hmm. So if the sun's right above you or if it's right behind you, you know, I'm going to get like some nasty shadows on your face. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, like my, that's just like my pet peeve or to me, that's what my, like, I want my pictures. Like I want to be able to see your face. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want your eyes to be dark. You know, like I want to see like a catch light in your eyes mm-hmm. and I want the sky to, to not be blown out. Like, I don't want the sky to look white if it's not overcast. If it's Mm -hmm. a blue sky, I want the sky to be blue. And so really, like, I'm just trying to keep it as, I guess, real as possible. I mean, it's not really real because you're just, well, I don't know. To me, it's just what looks good. It's like it allows you to expose for the sky. So the sky's not blown out. And then the flash kind of fills the light in on someone's face if if the sun isn't hitting it directly. And you can do a little bit in Lightroom or in post-production afterwards to try to sure. fiddle around with that stuff, but you get but a much, like a much. Do, yeah. I just, I like to do as much as I can in camera. You mm-hmm. know, I like to edit as, as the least amount as possible. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think you hear some people say, and like I said it too, you know, when I was learning, it's just starting like, Oh, I, I just do natural light. Like I don't, I don't like using a flash and people who like never use a speed light or a strobe, you know, but you know, as I've learned more, I think, and, worked more with flash and got more comfortable with it. I feel like I'm more confident in being able to use it. And then I, I see people not using it. And it's like, well, why wouldn't you, you know, it's, it, you, you can make a much better image. You can make, like you said, where you can actually see 
people's faces and see everything the sky the way it actually looks yeah so that it was interesting to me when i saw you were doing that and i was like oh okay that's just another one of those things where you know you can just take some snapshots on your phone at a protest and upload them whatever to social media or you can actually try to make images that are really stunning and beautiful and uh you know using a flash can be one of those ways you can do that yeah, I, I used to I used to think that that's what people why they would say that like I only shoot natural light, mm-hmm. but like two of my favorite photographers off the top of my head don't use flash at all, and okay. they're you know Caroline Yang and and Adonis Adonis Rose Green both are natural light shooters and they're just like like I get I don't want to say jealous but I'm just like oh <laughs> every time they just like they hit me in the face with like their photos you know mm. and um and may- maybe that's another thing too is th- is it takes out the having to search for the right light situations you know sometimes like True. when it, when it's an overcast day it's like perfect you know there's no shadows anywhere it's beautiful you've got your wonderful natural softbox like life is mm-hmm. good and and that's what you know people who don't usually take photos they think that blue sky is the best right they think, oh, blue, bright blue, sunny day. Like, this is the best day for photography. That's the worst day for photography, you know? <laughs> it's terrible, like, yeah. The light's yeah, just so harsh, and yeah. Yeah, so I hate shooting protests in the middle of the day. But when you have to do it, then, you know, I got my flash, and it's all good. Yeah, I've always, you know, it's funny, is I've always wanted to take, I've always wanted to, like, step it up and actually have, like, an assistant holding an off-camera flash with a softbox on it at protests, you know, and just, like, kind of walk around in the crowd and, like, but anyway, I'd probably get kicked out. (laughs) (laughs) I know, yeah, you could do such amazing work because, yeah, I mean, on-camera flash is always, you know, not ideal, but off-camera, yeah, you can get the right angles and distance and, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I definitely hear what you're saying, like, whether it's making a decision, like, not using flash and just using natural light or whether it's the decision to just use a whatever pick a lens like rather than a zoom lens just using like a 35 millimeter and not having being able to zoom you know sometimes putting those restrictions on yourself forces you to be more creative and get shots that you might not get otherwise so so i I definitely respect that as a decision of somebody who is a really good photographer and just makes a decision i'm just going to do natural light can sort of understand the light and figure out how to get amazing shots anyway like that's that is sort of next level i guess yeah i guess changing topics a little bit. So yeah, I remember, and I don't remember what year this was, maybe 2018, 2017, 2019, 20, something like that. It must've been 2017 or 18. I remember ran, running into you one day randomly at the dog park in St. Paul. And that was right at that moment where I was starting to want to get more seriously into photography. And I remember just like grilling you with questions. And I don't remember everything you said in response to that grilling, but I, I do remember asking you like, where are some good spots, you know, to get photos? Like, cause I know you, I had seen your abandoned building photography and some of your like, you know, streetscape or, or urban kind of skyline kind of stuff. And I remember you like pointed basically right across the street where there was some train tracks and an old train. And I said, I could get some interesting shots there. So, you know, I went over right after and did that. And Uh, tried it and just sort of kept going from there. And that's around when I really caught the photography bug again, you know, after not doing much since like high school or college and, you know, taking off from that, like what advice do you have for people who want to get more into photography or just want to take better photos, even with their phones, you know, whether for taking photos at a protest or, or something else? I guess my advice would be to find something that you enjoy photographing, really. Yeah, like... Because that's how you got into it, right? It sounds like you were into skating and you wanted to 
document that and so you felt motivated to exactly exactly and and that and i wanted to be really good at it i think that carried over into when i started taking photos you know wanting to be really good at it wanting to master the craft you know and wanting to produce good good work it wasn't just like i enjoy taking photos mm -hmm. like to for, and actually for me i mean this is kind of a side note but like the photo itself the end product is just kind of like a byproduct of really of everything else that i enjoy about photography it's like such a small part of it i don't know like i enjoy the gear the you know the just the, the the whole act of it is more what i enjoy more than the actual product like the, the product is cool too like the plan the planning and all you know everything yeah yeah and the learning um, yeah. But, yeah but I, I think that's what it is whether it be you know like i love cars and it's something that I, i've always wanted to do was like take good photos of really nice cars or if you like animals you know dogs go to the dog park and take pictures but you got to find something that you and that you love because then when you're looking at the photos it's gonna be that much more impactful to you mm. so yeah if you food whatever it is but i think that's kind of what can spark the bug yeah i really agree with that and a lot of times when i started going on facebook or youtube just to learn more about how do i become a better photographer you know one of the things that people say is like people always at the beginning feel like they have to go to some like really beautiful stunning place go to the national parks or, or things like that to get good photos and it's just really so not true really you should or you have to take photos with like models you know but really you should always i think start with what like you said, what is uh, interesting or what motivates you and, and document that and start yeah, from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned taking photos of cars and I know you've also posted over the years a lot of photos of a lot of things besides protests. Like uh, I know you've done some abandoned building and abandoned space kind of photography, some night photography, like long exposure stuff, uh, nature photography, like at some of the state parks and, and, you know, your portraits with, whether it's with your kids or other people really are just phenomenal, I think. So I'd love to just hear about some of your work in those types of photography. Like how did you learn how to do that? Or how did you get into like finding abandoned places or yeah. So yeah, abandoned. So all, all of those came kind of like, I don't know, but Phil, Phil Ward was the, the dude that got me into abandoned photography. I can't remember the first place we went, but I do remember going there and going, what the hell am I supposed to take? <laughs> what, what am I, what can I take a picture of? Like I, the first time we went, I couldn't appreciate the aesthetics for some reason. Like, I don't know why I just, I mean, I always thought it was cool, you know, but for, for yeah. photography wise, I didn't know how to do it. Like I could see in video how it could be cool, but I was like, it was challenging. It was a challenge. But then after that first time, I was like hooked. Okay. I was like, this is awesome. The whole experience was cool. Like climbing, you know, like having to climb into a place that's like nasty and decrepit and, <laughs> you know, hopefully dark because the darker, the better. Cause then, you know, you got to use your flashlights and you got to get super creative. And mm -hmm. again, um, it sounds like the photo is just one piece of it. The whole adventure and process exactly. is really amazing too. Yeah, totally. Totally. And so he, he and Phil, like he's lived here his entire life and he's, you know, he's worked in the Twin Cities, you know, forever. And he's, he's lived out. He's just, he's been here. And so he knows where everything is. And it's like, you know, we would do that. And then, you know, he, I, I was shooting long exposure stuff before I met Phil, but he was, he's definitely the one who showed me every spot here 
in town. Like we'd go out, we were, we would go out like weekly and, uh, and I would never even have to worry. I would just jump in the car and be like, <laughs> wherever we go, it's going to be cool. You know, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even pay attention to directions or anything. I'd just be like, yeah. Just this end up awesome. at some like random abandoned, decrepit place. Totally. Yeah. It's amazing. And I remember talking to Phil too about going, getting into Six Flags in New Orleans. Did you go there with him too? Yeah. No, I didn't go there with him. When, when I lived in New Orleans, I went there a few times. It's like and a it whole aban- awesome. it's a whole abandoned Six Flags. That's just yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah. and it, but it not only abandoned, but like like a lot of it's un- in swamp, you know. So there's like wild boar out there. There's gators. There's it's it's crazy out there. Is that because of Hurricane yeah. Katrina? Exactly. It's because yeah, and they just they never they just left it, you know, wow. the same. But I would go out there and like we actually would like skate in there you know and it was just like i got oh my gosh i got was i yeah it was i don't know where those video clips went but anyways yeah we filmed a bunch of stuff there i had a buddy from san francisco fly out we got some amazing clips there and and um this was before i was shooting photos which sucks because while i was living there yeah i was literally less than five minutes from that park like i lived right like you'd go out the entrance go down the street turn left and my house is there wow you know, and then I met Phil and then I introduced Phil to a buddy of mine, uh, Russ in New Orleans. And I was like, you guys would love each other. Mm-hmm. And so they started talking to each other. And then I can't Phil went down there, you know, and they met and hit it off. And Russ took Phil to Six Flags. And you've seen Phil's ridiculously amazing photos from there. Yeah. But yeah, that place is awesome. And then I did get to go back a couple of years ago with russ and we went in there and i got some photos too so and that night was i could have been there all night i could have you could be you could be there for a week and get amazing photos every night yeah it sounds like a a must go place at some point and i mean in new orleans new orleans is just an abandoned urban explorers like dream because there's just so many buildings there are abandoned and they don't tear them down like they do here you know wow like they're just like yeah so what what about portraits? Your your portraits, especially of like your kids, are just, in my opinion, amazing. And how did you learn how to do portraits? Practice, practice, all, practice. Practice all on my own. I definitely knew for some reason I knew that I had to know how to use flash for shooting portraits. Mm. Like for some reason in my head I was I wasn't it was just like a I personally can't be successful at shooting portraits if I'm not using artificial light. For, that was just in my head and I don't know if it's because I'm a gear person and I was like oh <laughs> this is another chance for me to get into even more gear you know? yeah <laughs> so that, that could that's probably another but even still like I've been using flashes for I don't know years now at least five or six years and I still don't know half of what I feel like I could know you know totally and uh yeah like I don't use a light meter you know do you use a light meter when you I yeah, don't. you know like yeah and, I mean it, it would have um, been it would have been necessary in the film days but now you can just sort of take a shot, look at it, adjust, take a shot, look right. at it, adjust, you know, and so yeah, I, you but can just I know, sort of cheat, but yeah, but I know photographers that still use, that still use them, but you can be a yeah, lot more precise so, that way for sure. You yeah. Can, yeah. Technically precise. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, my portraits were horrible at first, man. Like my event photography was horrible at first and I don't know. Really? I think it was, yeah, the stress of, cause I, I wasn't like, like, I don't think I ever did like a gig for free. Like even from the beginning, I was like a friend was never like, "Hey, can you come and film my or take pictures of our my birthday party?" It was like somebody asked me, and they like asked me my rate. You know, I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what you know. Like I didn't know anything, but like even my 
my first event and even my first portrait, the first time I shot someone's portrait, I can't remember who it was, but I know it was a paid gig, you know? Okay. And so I was like, if someone's going to pay me for anything, whatever the amount is, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to like yeah, do as best as I can because that's yeah, that's what just what you have yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th I probably YouTube, you know, and at the time I think I had um, fixed lights for video. Right. Sure. And so continuous light. Yeah. Yeah. Continuous light. And so I YouTube how to take portraits with continuous light, you know, and I, I watched like a handful of those videos. I tried it out and I'll tell you right now, the continuous lights that I have are the worst portrait lights ever, but oh, really? like, I, yeah, they're, they're so bad, but until I turn them into black and white and then they were like, they looked amazing. I've done a lot of horrible paid gigs. Let's put it that way. Like the, the like the product you delivered was horrible or the experience yeah. was horrible? Oh, okay. Like yeah, you look, you look back at it now of... and you're like, oh my God, I could have done that so much better. Totally. Totally. And that was like for the first handful of, of events, but I'm pretty, I'm like pretty confident in my photography now where like when I do events or, you know, do portraits, even portraits, I still get pretty nervous about if I'm shooting family portraits, I get really worked up and my anxiety levels get really high like the night before. Okay. But um, I'm like 99% of the time, I'm pretty happy with with the results. But yeah, just all self-taught, I guess, would be to answer. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and that's something that I've definitely experienced, like in talking with you about whether it's photography or other hobbies, like when you get into something, you like get into it deep and explore everything about it and know everything about it. And yeah, I'm, I'm not quite that way. I, I feel like I'm just sort of scratching the surface and figuring it out as I go and stumbling along. But but yeah, so you kind of got into talking about doing photography for money. And we haven't talked about that yet. I, I just want to touch on that a little bit. And again, when I was first thinking about making that leap to doing photography for, for money and not just as a hobby, I remember we talked for a while and that really helped me think about like if and how I could do photography and ask people for money for it. And uh, in my experience, there can be contradictions in that, especially if you're working with people you know, it's always uncomfortable talking about money and you're working with like people or organizations in the community or in the movement that maybe don't have a lot of money, you know, so you don't want to charge people too much, but you know, you have a skill and you have to pay the bills and cover your costs. So I don't know, it seems like a lot of people don't value photography in the same way they would have maybe 20 years ago when everyone didn't have like a phone in their pocket, you know, that they're carrying around. Uh, so I'm just curious about your thoughts on on all of that. Like, ha are you able to make a living from photography or have you at, at different points? And Yeah, um, I mean, am, am I able to, yeah, here in this present time in the Twin Cities, I am. Like, I always think about whether or not I'd be able to make a living in photography in the Bay Area. And I'm like, no, I would definitely have to have a couple of side jobs, you know. And Just because the cost um, of living's just skyrocketed out there just to bananas levels, right? Yeah. And, and the population, you know, and just, you know, how many, I'm sure there's like a million photographers out there, you know. Right. Yeah. So I'm like really fortunate, I think, to be here in the Twin Cities where it's not flooded. There's not a flood of just talent and I don't but I don't know but you and I we also like uh, it's different because we're part of such a tight-knit community you know the movement community and, and the nonprofit community you know mm -hmm. because word gets around and we don't have to market ourselves as much because of word of word of mouth you know and that's really been my experience too like when I made the decision to try and do photography for money and leave my day job I wasn't sure how long it would take before I'd be able to get the kind of income I need to to pay the bills and and everything but and I'm I'm also similar to you not really good at 
marketing myself or, you know, branding myself, all that kind of stuff that you listen to a lot of podcasts and YouTube videos. And it's all about all that stuff. And I tried a little bit to do some Facebook ads for wedding photography and just failed miserably. So I've really just gone on word of mouth and, and it has worked pretty well, actually. And yeah. I, like I shoot at one wedding and then very often I'll get a email or call from someone who was at that wedding who's like, oh yeah, I saw your, you know, your photos from yeah. there. Can you do my wedding? And it just sort of goes from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, um, I don't know. Like I, I, I consider myself like a very lazy, lazy, like business person, uh -huh. you know? And yeah. So like, I'm like, like I had a website, you know, because everybody says you got to do a website. Right. Right. And do you still have a website? You do have a website. I do. Yeah. And it has, I have like a for, you know, forms on there that people can contact me if they want to get my rates or whatever. I get like an email every couple of weeks, you know, it's, you know, you, you start off, you think like, okay, I'm going to put up a website and then the, the inquiries are going to come pouring in, you know, and it's just not the case. Well, people, yeah. But people still go through your website. I do. I have gotten some. Yeah. I just actually got a inquiry about doing headshots for an office of 40 people from someone I don't know. And uh, oh, wow. from my website, I've gotten a couple, a few wedding inquiries on my website, but very few, you know, it's, that's way more than I've gotten okay. <laughs> that I ever got on mine. And who knows? I mean, this was like, maybe I should do a new one. I don't know. It's been years, you know, but I, I stopped because like, it was just, it was getting like literally a hit a month, <laughs> you know? Um, but I also wasn't like, Hey, everybody go check out my website. It was more like I used it as a reference. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, why am I paying to use it as a reference when I can just put my photos on Facebook and have them go through my albums, you know? And so that's, that's pretty much what I do now. And, but I've been, I've been here and I've, you know, most of my yearly business, like I do the same events every year. I do the same big events every year and like events for and, nonprofits and things like that. Right. For the most part, like 95% of my work is probably nonprofit work, but, and every once in a while I'll get some major company that's advertising agency or something that needs some, some work done. And those are awesome because then you just, you don't feel guilty about your rates or, you know, you don't have to worry about sliding scale or anything like that. You, know? mm, yeah. because you do have to worry about waiting six months to get paid. That's like the only issue is it always takes forever from the big, the big corpse. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about gear here and there, and I guess I'd like to hear, I don't think we've gone through exactly like what gear you use now for photography. So like, yeah, what kind of camera do you use when you shoot these days? And do you use the same camera for all the different kinds of photography you do? And what lens or lenses? Yeah, so I finally upgraded to mirrorless less, less than a year ago. So I was using the Canon 5D Mark III and the Canon 60 Mark One for like forever until literally like not the, like less than a year ago, and then I finally upgraded. Fine, I've been waiting, waiting, waiting for Canon to come out with a legitimate full frame mirrorless camera. And yeah, everybody's got... around me has already switched. Everybody, I think did King had King. I think King might have actually had already switched over. Christian has not switched over yet. Maybe he has now, but I don't think he has. Okay, but um, he was but, still doing know, DSLR. Yeah. But Phil had already switched over to Sony. My buddy Russ had already switched over to Sony. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm like sticking with Canon. I got it because I had all <laughs> these lenses, you know, like I had all these Canon L lenses. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not selling these. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, like I want to still be able to use them. But then obviously, of course, I knew they were going to switch the mounts anyways, but whatever. 
I wanted to wait for Canon to come out with good. And they finally did. They came out with the, the R5 and the R6. And they're just like, I can't believe it's almost like way too easy now, you know, with their, <laughs> with their autofocus system, the eye autofocus system. It's like anybody can take phenomenal photos. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, I, I absolutely love them. And I only have two RF lenses, but they're my, like my main ones, which is the 70 to 200 2.8 IS and the 15 to 35 2.8 IS, the RF 15, because the 16 to 35 didn't have IS. So the new ones do, the new one has, and you know, the camera body has in-body image stabilization and the lens has, right. has image stabilization as well. So it's like the first time I shot video with the camera, I was like walking. I'm like, I don't need a monopod anymore. I don't need a tripod anymore. Like, <laughs> I can just like, like walk. And it was just like, smooth. smooth. I couldn't believe it. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So you use the 70 to 200 and then the, what was the wide angle one you said? Yeah. 15 to 35. And so you don't use sort of one in the middle of that. That's, you know, 20 to 28 to 70 or anything like that. No, the 24 to 70. No. It sucks, like, cause well, they always say that that's part of the Trinity, right? Yeah. Twenty-four yep. to seventy. Yeah, and I no, my twenty-four to seventy sits in my case and rarely ever gets used. Like, I'll shoot it for like group photos. I use it for group photos, but other than that, I'm all about the fifteen to thirty-five. So, what do you use and, for portraits? Do you use the like shoot it at like thirty-five, or do you use the seventy? Oh, I use a 70 to 200. For portraits? Uh-huh. For portraits. And I try to always shoot it at 200 if possible. So you're pretty far back when you're doing that then? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, but yeah, I would say even even like family portraits, I shoot with a 70 to 200. So it's just like an amazing portrait lens mm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What about any gear beyond just the camera and lenses? What What's some other gear that you like that you think uh, people might benefit from or be interested in? like flashes and stuff or just are you referring to like just protest photography or no no more in general i guess yeah like, um, like whether it's I flashes mean, or like the the harness or whatever to carry two two cameras at the same time or yeah i hate i hate it i hate having to carry two cameras at the same time but it's kind of important for what we do yeah i don't know dual camera strap my 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 f- new i guess my other favorite piece of kit is my peak design um, tripod the carbon fiber one are you familiar with the peak design one no tell me about it so you use you use all the peak design stuff the straps and the straps straps or whatever yeah so you've got the little arca plate on the bottom anyway so peak design made a a tripod where there's just there's like zero negative space between the legs so it's just like nice and solid the legs aren't round you know they're not circular legs and they're not i can't even really explain the shape but basically when you collapse the whole thing it's just there's no negative space between the legs and so it's super small super compact like you can fit it in your water bottle pocket on your backpack if you have one you know okay and it's just like one one knob on the top that controls everything like there's not like you don't have like the two knobs that you gotta like do all kinds of crap with you know and regular tripod Mm -hmm. and so it's literally just like one thing where you just you can adjust everything and it's like right there it's a little expensive but i'm gonna have to look into that yeah yeah because when i first started i got the cheapest tripod I could find and that, you know, it's fine. But when you're going to doing like long exposure, things like that, if it's not fully stable, you're going to get some shake or yeah. Yeah. What strobes are you using? Have you checked out the the AD 200s? So I have a AD 600, one of those. Oh, you got the big boy. Yeah. Which, Uh which is awesome. I don't have, I don't have an AD 200. I, I, that's sort of 
high on my list of things to get next, you know, one or two yeah. of those. Yeah, I got two of them. I, I absolutely love them. I don't know why I waited so long to get them. Because hmm. originally I was going to get the six, the 8600. And um, I was like, well, I'm going to get I'm going to get two of these, you know, first and see how these go. And I'm like, I don't even know if I need the 8600 anymore because these things are just like they're tiny. You know, they're they're super small and you can put them super far back. They're plenty of light. Hmm. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. A friend of mine who's a wedding photographer, that's what he uses at weddings. So he has like off camera flash. He just sort of holds it in his hand, you know, and then shoots with the other hand. And it's light and yeah. small enough that you can do that, which is kind of yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. So we've been on here for a while now, so uh, why don't we start to wrap up? And I just wanted to see if there's anything else you want to touch on that we didn't talk about. Yeah, but this might be off off the record. I don't know. So you know how you say the Red Lens podcast? Yeah. You should just chop it to the Red Lens, dude. Yeah. The Red Lens is an awesome name. Yeah. I was like, oh, the Red Lens is so cool. Like, just, yeah, just say, welcome to the Red Lens. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's shorter. And people who are listening to it, so they already know it's a podcast, right? So that makes sense. I like it. Yeah, yeah. So where can people find your work online, see some of your photography or videography, or get in touch with you if they want to hire you to take some um, pictures? I guess Facebook and Instagram are pretty much the only place. Instagram at Typhi PQ. And yeah, you can you can find me on Facebook, Typhi Fong Kwong. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this interview. I think it was a lot of fun. And <laughs> Right on. Yeah, totally. A rich man will. I have turned a you can support Red Lens Podcast by supporting my Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash seagullphotos, S-I-G-A-L-P-H-O-T-O-S, and sign up for a small monthly donation. That will go a long way in helping sustain the podcast and my work as a political photographer. Thank you for checking out and supporting Red Lens Podcast.